turn, if you're not there yet, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And we're going to be focusing on a verse that you're likely familiar with. Um, But let's read beginning in verses 1 all the way through 11, and we'll spend a majority of our time in verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. I am a fan of Zaxby's. I don't know if anyone in here likes Zaxby's. Uh, You can raise your hands if you're a fan of Zaxby's. I don't know if you know this, but Zaxby's has a mission statement. Most companies do. And they used to print this on the back of the receipt. Does anyone, just raise your hand if if you've ever heard the mission statement of Zaxby's before. Okay, good. This is their mission statement. Their their mission is to consistently create encore experiences that enrich lives one person at a time. That's a mission statement, right? Next time you go to Zaxby's, now you're all going to want to go there because I just said Zaxby's after lunch, after church, right? Now you're not going to be able to think about the text because I said Zaxby's. But next time you go there and you get your your kicking chicken sandwich... I want you to sit there and I want you to, to say, is the mission of Zaxby's being fulfilled in my life right now? Is this an encore experience? Right? Is my life being enriched by this? The answer, usually the answer for me is yes, right? But that, that's a powerful mission statement. But, I, but I, I'll challenge you to do this. When you go to Zaxby's, next time you go, ask the cashier what their mission is for working at Zaxby's. Just say, why are you here? I would venture to guess that you would not get that answer. Someone would probably say, I'm, I'm, my dad made me get a job. That's why I'm here. Right? Or someone would say, man, this is one of two jobs. I'm trying to make ends meet for my family. Or I, I came to work at Zaxby's. I want to be a store owner someday. So I'm working my way kind of up the ladder. You, you would probably get a lot of different missions from individuals within Zaxby's. But my guess is, and if you meet this person, he should be promoted. My guess is when you ask a cashier why you're here, they're not going to say, well, listen, I'm here to consistently create encore experiences that enrich lives one person at a time. It's one thing to, to, 
to know the mission, for somebody high up to know the mission of an organization. It's, it's another thing for individuals, for the people collectively as a whole, to know why they are there. And my guess is many Christians today have different answers to that question. What is your mission? Why are you here? What is your purpose here? And so what God does for us in Acts chapter 1, specifically verse 8, he does this in several other places as well, Matthew 28, is he brings our focus back on the mission and he shows us this. This is kind of the big idea, one point for the whole sermon. The church is privileged with the spirit-empowered, witness-bearing, global task of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ in all the world. That is the mission of the church. That is why you and I are still here. That is why after we've placed our faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, we weren't immediately transferred up to heaven. Because God's given us a mission. And so... In this text we see, let's, let's just kind of walk through, I'm going to speed through to verse 8. In verse 1, we see what's going on in the book of Acts. We, we know that Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he says in verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so Luke is writing this book, he's written another one, it's the Gospel of Luke. But in this book... He's, he's writing to Theophilus again. That word means friend of God. It just means friend of God. Some say it was an actual individual he was writing to. It probably was. Others say uh, it's a creative way that Luke is writing to say that this is for the church. This is for all who are in Christ, who are friends of God. Either way, it's for Theophilus. And we know as Christians today, this is God's word for us. And he says, Theophilus, in the first book, I wrote all about what Jesus began to do and teach. So that's what Luke was, right? That's what the Gospels are for. They're telling of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if you read the Gospel of Luke, you read about the miracles of Christ. You read about the teaching of Christ. But the big picture that every Gospel writer gives you is the message of the Gospel itself. That a sinless God-man, Jesus Christ, descended his throne from heaven, came to earth, lived a sinless life that you and I could never live, died a sinner's death in our behalf that you and I deserved to die because of our sin, rose victoriously from the grave three days later, defeating sin and death so that all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ may have life everlasting. That is the summary of the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke's saying in this first book, that's what I, I wrote. But notice this word here in verse 1. Look down at your Bibles. All that Jesus began to do and teach. What Luke's saying here is that Jesus, in one very real sense, is not finished with his work. Now you may say, wait a second, Kevin. We just sang about the finished work of Christ on the cross. Absolutely, we did. And I want you to hear me clearly on this. In one sense, Jesus' work is finished. Jesus did what only Jesus could do, and that is pay for the sins of wretched mankind. Only Christ can do that. Because only Christ was perfect. Only Christ was the God-man. But there's another sense in which, in the Gospels, the work of Christ has just begun. 
Because now what Christ desires to do, what we read about in Luke's second book, the book of Acts, is how Christ now gets that message of the finished work of salvation to the nations. And so it's as if Luke is saying here, in this first book I wrote about all Jesus began to do and teach, now in this book I'm going to write about how Jesus got the message of the gospel out. And that shows us something very real. It is not the apostles primarily who got the gospel out. It, it wasn't an, an organization who, who shared the gospel in Acts. It wasn't them who were responsible. We could likewise call this book the Acts of Jesus through the apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. What God is doing in Acts is exactly what he is still doing today. And that is getting the message of the finished work of Christ to the nations. So Jesus began in book one by securing salvation for us and he is continuing in the book of Acts and today to spread that gospel to all nations. Think of it this way. My wife is a very gifted painter. She was actually painting something the other night for her grandmother's birthday. Just a wonderful painter. Um, I'm not artistic at all. Um, I can draw stick figures. Um, I, I do a helicopter pretty well, you know, for my son, things like that. But imagine my wife is painting this beautiful picture, and, and she decides, I'm not going to finish it, I've got to go somewhere. And she comes to me and says, Kevin, can you help me finish this painting? One, she's shaking, she's, she would never do that, right? And I, I would say, uh, you're an artist, you can paint, if I touch that, I'm, I'm going to ruin it. Right? We may be thinking about that in terms of the mission of God. But what Jesus is, is saying here, and what we'll see in a moment, is that though Jesus could snap his fingers, and every lost person in the universe could, know him, could, could trust in him, though the rocks could cry out and advance the gospel, Jesus has chosen the church. Jesus has chosen you and, and me. To finish the masterpiece. That should humble us. That, that should amaze us that the God of the universe has chosen sinners like you and I to take the message of the gospel, the greatest news ever, and herald it to all creation. That, that should amaze us, but that's exactly what we'll see in a moment. And so Luke says this is what Jesus began to do and teach in book one, the book of Acts. We're going to see what God continued to do, what Christ continued to do through the apostles. In verse three of chapter one, Luke kind of gives us a little snippet of what was happening between the resurrection and the ascension. That sort of 40-day period. Jesus gives proof of the resurrection. Paul tells us later in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ appeared to, to more than 500 at one time. Uh, in, in verse 3, Luke tells us what we just read earlier from Luke 24, that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. Luke 24, 27 says that Jesus is showing all the scripture, all the things in scripture that pertain to himself. And so what happened after the resurrection to where we are in Acts chapter 1 is a sort of 40-day seminary crash course for Jesus and his followers. 
Right? He's going through the Old Testament and he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. He's showing him how everything points to Christ. Everything points to the gospel. What's he doing? He's getting them ready to be sent out. In verses 4 and 5, Luke tells us that Jesus told them, as we read again earlier, to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. This was prophesied by John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, verse 8. Wait here for the Holy Spirit where you'll be clothed with power from on high. In verse 6, the apostles ask a question. And they, they show us that they don't quite get it. Right, so they've received this seminary training, this 40-day crash course. Jesus himself is preaching to them. In verse 6, they come together and they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And here, here's what they probably mean by that. We don't know for sure, but we know that they don't quite understand the kingdom of God yet. Here's what they mean. They mean, Jesus, will you at this time overthrow the Roman government? Like, I understand you, you died on the cross, you rose from the dead, you've taught us all this stuff about the Old Testament. Now, is it, is it time for you to establish Israel as a nation on earth again? And you can know, Jesus is far more meek than any of us are. I think I would say, are you guys serious? Have you been listening to anything I've been saying to you over the past 40 days. That's not what Jesus says. So. Jesus merely says in verse 7, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Here's what he's saying. There will come a day when the kingdom of God will be fully restored on earth. There will be that day, but it's not for you to know when that will be. And here's why. This is so important for us. Jesus is about to bring the focus of the disciples back on what really matters. He's saying, listen, your question is good, but it's not for right now. Here is what really matters. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so that's helpful for us to know that Jesus gave Acts 1.8 in a response to a question by, by followers of him who were distracted from the true purpose. That happens to us all the time. And maybe, maybe that's us this morning. And I would pray that Jesus would bring the focus of our primary task back to the center this morning. Which is Acts chapter 1 verse 8. The spirit empowered witness bearing mission of God to the nations. So that brings us up to verse 8. And if you're, if you're taking notes, I'm just going to give you three characteristics of the mission. Three characteristics of the mission. We see all of this from verse 8. And here is number one. This mission is spirit-empowered. This mission is spirit-empowered. That word power in verse 8 is dunamis. Now, we get the word dynamite from that word. There was no dynamite in first century, okay? So that's not what that word means. Some have uh, kind of incorrectly translated that and say, you know, it's, it's explosive power. So 
there was no dynamite in the first century, but we get the word from this word dunamis. So that's a, a wonderful picture of the power that is seen in Acts. Right? This is elsewhere translated mighty works or, or miracles in the Gospels. It includes boldness. It in, includes courage, insight, uh, ability. And Jesus is saying to his disciples who were hiding out, right, who had abandoned him in his time of need, who the leader had denied him three times, he's saying to them, listen, you will receive power. You will receive power. Now we have to note this. Every time we see the power of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, it's in connection with gospel proclamation. I want to be be very clear here. We never see miracles for miracles' sake. We see that a lot today, don't we? Right? We see miracles for the sake of miracles or for the sake of excitement. And, and that is, just as an aside, that is a sure test of whether someone is truly proclaiming the gospel. If they're, if they're claiming miracles and there's no gospel. Right? Miracles were always in connection with the person and work of Jesus Christ. It was never look at the miracles. It was look at Christ. I look at the power of Christ. And so Jesus says, this is the power that you will receive. Read through the rest of Acts. You, you see it. You see people healed. You see demons cast out. You see people transported miraculously from one place to the next so that they can proclaim the gospel. And where does this power come from? Jesus wants us to know. Right? This doesn't come from smart people. Right? These disciples had just had a 40-day seminary crash course from Jesus himself. Wouldn't you like that, right? They just just heard the whole Old Testament scriptures opened up to them, and they still didn't get it. If there's one thing you learn about the disciples in the Gospels, and I hope you learn it about yourself, and surely I see myself in this, is that they were thick-headed. You don't look at the lives of the apostles, the disciples, And then look at the book of Acts and say, man, they must have been great leaders. They must have been great strategists for mission. No. Power does not come from them. The power doesn't come from an organization. The power comes from God. The power comes from receiving the Holy Spirit, which happens in the very next chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 21, which is Peter quoting the prophecy of Joel chapter 2. You will receive this power because the mission of God is not dependent upon any of us in our own strength. As we talk about this mission, a helpful illustration may be to think of, of a car going on a journey, right? And the Holy Spirit is the fuel in the tank. It is what you need to go. John chapter 7, Jesus stands up at the end of a feast and he says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has been glorified. He's risen from the dead. He's about to ascend. He's about to leave. And he says, listen, the power for the mission is about to fall on you. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the fuel in the tank. 
Do you recognize the power that you have as a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? Think about that for a moment. Do you recognize that power? We could, we could talk for hours. We won't, because I know you want to go to Zaxby's. But we could talk for hours about what the work of the Holy Spirit does. We sang about some of it earlier. Right? We read about it in the Word. Opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. Empowers us to fight sin in our lives. But the primary task that we see here is to make much of Jesus. To bear witness about who Christ is. And I think in our churches, what happens is we, we become, if we're not careful, almost afraid of the Holy Spirit. Right? And, and hear me, I understand this. There has been much, much done to harm the name of Jesus and to harm the work of the church in the name of the Holy Spirit. And so what happens to a lot of us Christ-centered, Bible-loving Christians is we don't want to be seen as those wackos over there. Right? So if we're not careful, we, we fall off on the other side of the horse and we don't realize that we are utterly dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit for every single thing that we do as Christians. And this is so important for the disciples and it's important for us because if, and I know some of you are living on mission, and I don't know all of you, maybe all of you are, praise God, I know your church is living on mission. But as you go about the mission, you will face hardships. There will be opposition. And if it is in your own strength, you'll stand down quickly. But if it is in the power of the Holy Spirit, God's will will prevail. So do you recognize the power that you have as a follower of Jesus Christ to live on Mission. So that's the first characteristic of a mission. It's spirit-empowered. Here's the second one. This is a witness-bearing mission. A witness-bearing mission. So if the Holy Spirit is the fuel in the tank, bearing witness is the vehicle, right? That's the car we're driving. That's what we are to do. That's what the Spirit is empowering us to do, to tell of Jesus. This word witness is martus. From it we get the word martyr. And it means simply to tell. So to bear witness of Jesus, we are simply telling what Jesus has done. We're talking about the person and work of Christ. In a a courtroom, the legitimacy of a prosecution or a defense rests heavily upon credible witnesses, right? We, We know, 1 Corinthians 15, that There were more than 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. We know that there was enough to spark a revolution of gospel proclamation in the book of Acts. You see that through the rest of the book. Now what are they doing? This is helpful for us. What is the mission? Here's what the mission is not. The mission isn't merely doing good things. Right? The mission isn't merely helping people who are in need. Now hear me, it certainly is that, but it's not just that. If a man is dying in the desert because he's thirsty and you walk by and you have two things, you have a canteen full of water and you have the gospel, give him both things. Give him the water, but give him the gospel. Because if you give him the water, but you don't give him the gospel, 
he may survive that, but when he dies 10 years later and has no gospel, he'll face a far more painful death than dying in a desert. Right? So the mission of the church, our mission is not merely to help people. It is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Evangelism is not merely serving other people. That is part of it. Serve your neighbors. Serve others. Take care of those in need. That is the heart of God. But you are not spreading the gospel until you speak the gospel. Um, St. Francis of Assisi is coined, he never said this, but he's coined with saying the popular uh, phrase, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. That sounds good. That would go nice on a bumper sticker. And, the, and the, what, it, what they're saying is you preach the gospel by how you live your life. Well, I don't know about you, but I know many atheists who live very moral lives. I know many professing Muslims who live moral lives. Living a nice life gets no one saved from hell and into the kingdom of God. The only thing that saves us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So by very definition, gospel means good news. News must be proclaimed. It must be spoken. That's why when we see in the rest of Acts, we see the apostles doing good things. Absolutely we do. We see people healed. We see demons cast out. But we see the primary focus of the apostles in the church is gospel proclamation. And so the Holy Spirit empowers you and I, empowers the church to do what? To speak the message of the gospel, to bear witness. And how do we do this? We do this the same way Jesus did in verse, we see that in verse 1 of Acts, chapter 1. Jesus began to do and teach. Those are the two ways that Luke describes the work of Christ in the gospel of Luke. In the first book, I wrote about what Jesus began to do and teach. And so what are we doing? We're telling people of what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. And we're also modeling that for other people and for each other. We are doing, absolutely we're doing. Please don't hear me wrong on this. I'm not saying don't do good for people, just tell them about Jesus. Do good for people. I love talking to the members before, hearing about so many different things that God has laid on their hearts. Orphan care, right? Doing good. What a wonderful picture of the gospel. But also talking to a gentleman who sits down one-on-one and disciples people, speaking the gospel, both of those are necessary. Right? Christ did both of those things. But know this, every time we see the apostles or we see Christ doing good to others, it's in connection with a proclamation of who he is and his finished work on the cross. Why do we do that? Because we know, listen, we know that there is a deeper need than the physical, right? We know that there is a deeper need than alleviating suffering here on this earth, this short time that we are on earth. For those who are not in Christ, the suffering they experience on this earth pales in comparison to eternal punishment. And so we desire for people to be saved from hell, and so we speak the gospel as we serve them. That is how we bear witness to Jesus. And so in Acts, the immediate result of receiving this power of the Holy Spirit is bearing witness. Acts chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. But Peter preaches the gospel. 
Right? You guys remember Peter. Peter who was hiding out when Jesus was crucified. Peter who had denied him three times is now filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Preaches the gospel boldly and 3,000 plus are added to the church at one single time. Not just the apostles. When we continue to read through Acts, we get to Acts chapter 7. And we see Stephen. Stephen was serving in the church. But he was full of the Holy Spirit and spoke boldly about Christ. Next thing you know, he's put really on a mock trial and he speaks boldly against the religious leaders and they immediately stone him to death. They murder him. Saul is standing there holding their coats and what happens? This may look like a a defeat to the early church, right? We're just in chapter seven. We're seven chapters in and people are getting murdered. It's not a defeat. God in his sovereign goodness uses this persecution to expand the gospel because believers are scattered. Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about what? Preaching the word. Preaching the word. As they're going, as they're running for their lives, wherever they are, in their houses, in their workplaces, one commentator says you could say they're, they're gossiping the word. This is so important for us. I want to just encourage you for a moment. A lot of times it's easy to think that um, you're not really a good missionary. You're not really living on mission unless you're a pastor or an evangelist or unless you move across the ocean. right? But Acts chapter 8 verse 4 is a good reminder to us that the expansion of the early church outside of Jerusalem began through people who were not vocational pastors, right? The apostles stayed in Jerusalem and everyone else left and as they were going, they were sharing the gospel. And so if you feel like, you know what, I don't really feel like I can make a difference for the kingdom because I work this secular job or, or because I'm a stay-at-home mom, let me just encourage you, wherever you are, that is your mission field. Moms, I've got four little kids, under five, under six. I know it's tough. That's, that is consuming your time. Listen, that is your mission field. Speak the gospel to those kids, right? If you're working a, a job that you don't think, maybe men, you're working a job during the days, you don't think this has much kingdom impact, who are you praying for in your office? Who can you... Who can you build a relationship with, go have coffee with, and tell them what God has done in your life, right? It's hard for us because there's a lot about radical Christianity, and it's great. Man, I love that stuff. Radical, crazy love, all that stuff that causes us to kind of stop being lazy and go. But the danger there is we can almost set up this standard that if we don't, you know, sell our house and move to a foreign country, we're, not, we're second-rate Christians. That's not what we see in Acts, though. What do we see in Acts? We see every single person as they're going, taking the gospel with them in whatever context they're in. They're bearing witness where they are. There's, there's no such thing as a, as a second-rate Christian. And so ask yourself that question. Where are you right now where you should be bearing witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ? What is the context God has planted you in? Do you see that as your mission field because it is and so this mission is 
spirit-empowered, it's witness-bearing, and lastly, it's global. It's global. So if, if the Holy Spirit is the fuel that's in the tank, the witness is the car, this is the journey, right? This is the map. This is the road. We see this, the extent of the mission in chapter 8 as well. Where is this going to take place? Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jerusalem is where Jesus' followers were. Those who are hearing this in Acts chapter 1, the disciples and followers, they were in Jerusalem. So you can think a city or town, right? Decula, Atlanta. But it's not just there. It's not just going to stay there. It's going to go beyond. It's going to go to Judea and Samaria. And so Judea was the, reason where, the, the region where Jerusalem was. Samaria was north of Judea. So think concentric circles. The gospel is going to spread out from Jerusalem, this little city. And it's going to go beyond into, think, a state Right? Think a country. Not just Decula, Atlanta, but Georgia, Alabama, Massachusetts, the United States, and then just because Jesus wants to make sure he has all his bases covered, where to the end of the earth. What God is beginning to do in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is exactly what he promised in Habakkuk 2.14 that Steve read earlier. Through the church, Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The extent of this mission is global. It's global. And what's great about this is Luke uses this as a sort of literary form in writing his book. This, Acts chapter 1.8, is a three-part table of contents for the book of Acts. Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1 through 7. Read it sometime this week. You'll see the gospel expanding in Jerusalem. All Judea and Samaria, Acts chapter 8 through 12. And to the end of the earth, Acts chapter 13 through 28, where the gospel ends in Rome, which was the end of the known world at the time, and the mission continues to us today. We have to understand this. We've talked about the what of the mission, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to bear witness, and the extent of the mission globally. But we haven't really talked about the reason for the mission. And we see that in Habakkuk 2.14, that Steve read earlier and I, I just read to you. What's the purpose of this? The purpose of this is the glory of the Lord. Why do we go? Why do we tell people in our neighborhoods, in our families? Why do we tell people in places like Boston? Why do we go to places like Indonesia to share the gospel? Because Christ is worthy of that worship. Christ is worthy of that worship. And so, two and a half years ago, God began, began sort of pressing this down on our hearts. We were part of a, a great church, New Branch who from the get-go knew we, we had a heart for church planning. And as we prayed about this, God, where would you have us go? Boston came up. We read an article called Why New England is the New American Missionary Frontier. And in that article, I learned statistics that, I, that just blew me away. All top, all six New England states, which is the top six states in the Northeast, all of those states are in the list of the top 10 least religious in the U.S. 
a, a place that was once, once rich with gospel heritage. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, right? The Great Awakening is completely dead to the gospel now. We got to Boston and we were with a, a catalyst with the North American Mission Board and he was encouraging us, praying for us, driving my wife and I around and he told us more about Boston, not just New England, but Boston. He said, Boston, Boston proper is 2% evangelical, meaning if you were to take Boston and put it in a foreign country, the IMB would consider it an unreached, unengaged people group. Like the ones you guys pray for here on Sunday morning. In our own country. He was driving us through town after town. We said, Where, where's a good place for us to plant a church? He said, throw a dart on the map. Town after town, 70,000 people, no gospel preaching church. 40,000 people, one gospel preaching church. In our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, here in Atlanta, there is one SBC church for every 4,000 people. In Boston, where we're going, there is one for every 43,000 people. It is completely post-Christian. And so God started stirring our hearts there and showing us that that's where we were going to be in Acts 1-8. That's where God was calling our family, right? to, to Boston. Just to tell you one story, we went to Arlington, Massachusetts, where we're, we're going to be uh, moving and planting in June. And at this time, this was January, we didn't know, we didn't know um, if this was going to be it. We were on a trip to explore three towns. And Arlington was one of them. And so we're walking through and we're praying. And uh, it's January, um, so we're, we're um, crying a little bit because it's cold, you know. And, and, and we decide we're going to sit down after seeing the town in a Starbucks and, and we're going to look at real estate and pray. Um, and then looking at real estate made us cry more and pray more. But we're sitting there at this table and my wife's got her phone out and we're, we're like this. Um, actually, we're sitting by the window and, and Lauren's a people watcher, so she's like, can we sit like where there are people? And so we go and we sit down where there are people. And sure enough, there's a lady sitting here, I won't tell you her name, and uh, she knows we're looking at real estate. So she says, oh, I'm a re- hey, I'm a real estate agent. And we start talking. It becomes very apparent that we have very different worldviews very quick. Very friendly lady starts telling us how she's, she lives with her partner, how she goes to the you, you, you church, Unitarian Universalist church, and she likes that church because people don't go to hell for what they do, right? And she turns, and she, she asked me, what kind of church do you want to plant? It was like an evangelism softball. God's like, here you go. And I answered, I said, well, a Jesus church. And her response was great. She goes, well, everybody loves Jesus. What kind of church do you want to plant? And so I, I, great opportunity to just walk through the gospel. Here's what we believe. It was all in there. Sin, wrath, right, atonement, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I share that with her. That's the kind of church we want to plan. And she looks at me and she says, I don't think your church is going to do very good business in Arlington. I said, we're not trying to do good business. We want people to meet the real Jesus. Right? And so that is sort of, that was it for us. God used that to say, that's the reason you need to be here. 
a town that's 70% Catholic. As far as we know, one church that maybe preaches the gospel, but it's not healthy, 43,000 people. And so that's where God has us in Acts 1a. Where, where does he have you? My, my conviction is that he has all of us in every part of it. Some of us, maybe God is calling us to pick up and go to the unreached people group that has 500 people that have never heard the gospel. Maybe God is calling us to go to a place like Boston or, or to move into to the inner city of Atlanta and help a, a church plant. Maybe it's just our neighbors across the street. But pray about it. What resources do I have whether it's prayer, whether it's funding, whether it's my actual time, what am I doing as someone who's called by Christ to fulfill the Great Commission to get the gospel to those who are around? And so Jesus tells the apostles this back in Acts 1, and then he just disappears, right? Look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up in a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, I love this, verse 11, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into the heavens. It's as if these angels are saying, what are you guys doing here? You've got work to do. He'll come back. Don't worry about that. You've got work to do, and that's the implication for us. We have work to do. It's estimated that by the end of the first century, there were one million Christians. Gospel spread like wildfire. A Roman lawyer wrote in an extra biblical writing, Pliny the Younger, in AD 110, he said, For many of every age, of every social class, even both sexes are being called to trial and will be called. Nor cities alone, but villages and even rural areas have been invaded by the infection of this superstition. But we know it's not a superstition, right? What happened in first century and second century? The gospel continued to advance and advance and advance. Today there's an estimated 2 billion people who are Christians. It advanced to this room. It advanced to your life because someone was faithful to Acts 1.8. Will you be faithful? There's still work to do. Though there's an estimated 2 billion Christians, there are 6,900 unreached people groups like the one we just prayed for this morning. No Bible. No consistent gospel witness. Why do we go? Because Jesus is worthy of of their worship. So as we close, I just want to very briefly encourage you. If you haven't taken notes yet, maybe just write these four things down. Four things I want to encourage you to do as a closing application. The first thing is repent. Right? All of us need to repent. Right? I need to repent of the sin of silence, of, of bearing witness to things other than Jesus. Christ, show us our sin. Show us where we've fallen short and living on mission and lead us back to the cross. The second thing is ask for a love for the lost. Pray that God would break your heart for those in your life who are lost and going to hell. Henry Light wrote in one of his hymns, Did Christ over sinners weep and shall our cheeks be dry? 
Right? If Christ was heartbroken over lost sinners, should we not also be heartbroken and sorrowful to the point where we're moved to compassion to spread the gospel? So pray for repentance, for love for the lost. Pray for humility. Be humbled that Jesus would even choose and equip sinners like you and me to bring his grace to a lost and, and dying world. That just amazes me. I am so unqualified for the mission that he's called me to. Each one of us are. But Thomas Watson, Puritan, says, God can strike a straight stroke by a crooked stick. And that's all of us. So pray for humility. And lastly, intentional living. Intentional living. Look at your schedule. Look at your resources. Look at where God currently has you and prayerfully ask God, how can I bring Jesus to those around me in this context? By the grace of Jesus, freely given to us, let's get to work on the spirit-empowered, witness-bearing, global task of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations because Christ is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we are here this morning because in your loving sovereignty, someone, be it a preacher, be it a family member, be it a friend, someone was faithful to bear witness to your son Jesus. And you, in your grace and mercy, saw fit to break away our stony hearts and open our eyes to the need of salvation. Lord, we ask this morning that you would likewise make us faithful to the mission. Lord, bring us to repentance for the areas we've fallen short. Oh God, how we need to repent daily, constantly of our shortcomings so that we can look to you by grace through faith, be empowered by your Holy Spirit to bear witness to Christ to those around us. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who may not know the saving love of Christ. Would you open their hearts now to the fact that they can work all they want for their salvation, but it's in vain. They can run all they want from the truth of the cross. But it's in vain. The only way we can be reconciled to you is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to your glory alone. And Father, I pray for this church. I thank you so much for Harbin's, a community that loves the mission of God because they know that you are worthy of worship and that you have privileged us with the task of being a part of seeing your glory fill the earth. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We want to make much of you with our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.